Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sun is still over the yard arm and the bank holiday feel-good factor is very much still in the ascendance. If you're back at work or enjoying the half-term with your children, welcome to the home of common sense where we have lots to do today and much to talk about, of course. First up, it's Tim Montgomery, founder of Conservative Home, on the phenomenon that is Boris Johnson. Never before has there been a Conservative Prime Minister, in my view, so seemingly unassailable, being called unfit for office, having a health secretary who is supposedly a congenital liar, having a former top lieutenant betray him uh, and throw him under a bus, and even managing to get a private wedding party organised in the midst of a lockdown. None of it seemingly touches him. None of it breaches the wall of success that keeps the opposition at bay. I mean, it doesn't do any harm, of course, that Sir Keir Starmer is completely and utterly useless. Uh, He's on tonight, by the way, with Piers Morgan on Life Story, so if you want to see him, a grown man cry, uh, that's the place to go. What exactly is Boris Johnson's secret? We'll be asking Tim, 0344 499 Coming up, we're joined by Jamie Jenkins as well, our favourite statistician who's following the data, not the dates. He'll be telling us exactly why the sage maniacs are now calling for a postponement of the June 21st opening date because of not just the Indian variant, but now the Vietnamese one as well. Apparently they're saying there could be a volcano of activity in the COVID area. And do you know how many deaths there were yesterday uh, leading up to this volcano? Ten? Nine? Eight. No, there's one. One. That's right. Roger Layton will also join us to give us his verdict on the proposal to add an extra half hour to every school day so that children can catch up on lessons they might have missed. Seems like a mad idea to me. Why don't we just cancel all the inset days and get the teachers actually working properly and get them back to school? Uh, and we'll be asking exactly why more than 270 charities are paying their bosses more than the Prime Minister, with one making nearly five million quid alone. Charity begins at home, ladies and gentlemen. Nice work if you can get it. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you after a weekend of baking heat, parks full of people and crowded beaches up and down the country. It looks to all intents and purposes, ladies and gentlemen, that the lockdown is officially over. As far as I'm concerned, 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome uh, to a Tuesday after a bank holiday weekend, perhaps one of the nicest bank holiday weekends I can ever remember, certainly when it comes to weather. The weather yesterday was absolutely glorious, beautiful again today. Uh, it's fantastic, isn't it, that everybody's now getting out on the streets. People are in parks. I was in Hyde Park on Saturday. Uh, it looks absolutely like uh, a normal day in a normal summer uh, before the pandemic ever hit, before anybody had ever heard of coronavirus. I was doing out uh, outside uh, shopping. Uh, we were sitting out having lunch. We were sitting out having dinner. I mean, it's just a beautiful, fantastic time to be alive, particularly uh, around the capital city. Let's talk now, though, to Tim Montgomery, founder of Conservative Home, a former number 10 advisor, of course. Tim, very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning. Well, I was in next to Salisbury Cathedral um, on Saturday, yeah. Mike, having a cream tea Lovely. with some friends and neighbours, and it did feel like a normal life is resuming again. It was yeah. absolutely wonderful. And I've always said, Tim, that the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the slow walk out of lockdown will kind of happen automatically when people all just decide to sort of do it. And it seemed to me this weekend that that was the weekend they decided to do it. Yeah, we seem to have reached a critical mass. People have had enough now, I think, and they're uh, they're ready to live as we should be living. Yes, so. quite. And and I mean, I'm very happy that you're on today because um, it strikes me that the, the 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 paucity of opposition to Boris Johnson is now so awful. Um, but he's so far ahead in the polls. He's so well liked by the people of this country that he does seem almost unassailable. And my question to you is this: What does it take? To, to sort of knock Boris Johnson off his perch? What does it take to make him uh, likely to be um, ousted in any way? Because I can't think of anything. Well, I think if you, in a way, if I can, Mike, answer your question almost the other way around, why is he popular? Mm. And therefore, I think if those things are undone, I think we get to the answer to your question. And the fact is, you know, Britain is set to be the fastest growing economy in the developed world this year. Mm. And Boris said that he would deliver Brexit he has delivered mm. Brexit. And of course, because of the vaccine rollout, something that his government can certainly take credit for through um, Kate Bingham, who yeah. uh, ran, ran the vaccination task force, we are probably one of the safest countries now in the world um, from COVID after probably what was a shaky start. And so I think so long as those things hold true and we have an opposition leader who is frankly quite so useless, <laughs> um, the, you know, the Conservatives will stay ahead. My challenge, though, would be I remember uh, because of my age, uh, just about anyway, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher in midterm elections, she lost lots of seats. Mm. You know, she was unpopular. And that was partly because what she did well, she didn't aim to be popular all of the time. She knew that the country needed medicine at certain times. It needed some tough love. And so she did the difficult things at the start of her parliaments, stuff that needed to be reformed, got reformed. And she timed it so that by the time of the election, you know, things were beginning to pay dividends. The reforms that she introduced were showing that they'd worked. And people said, yeah, it was tough, but it was worth it. My question for Boris Johnson and this government is, They've had some tough things to deal with, but are they preparing the government for the long term? Mm. You know, we have a massive parliamentary majority for the Conservatives. You don't get parliamentary majorities of this scale very often. Is the government using it wisely? Mm. The, the question for me isn't anymore, you know, is Boris popular? We know he can reach voters that no other politician can. But is he going to be a prime minister that goes down in history as having done the stuff that the country needs? Yes. And I think that's a very good point. I mean, I'm also tragically old enough to remember Margaret Thatcher. Um, and she had a very different kind of landscape to deal with, didn't she? I mean, she had to do things like take on the unions, like stop the flying pickets, like stopping um, uh, all sorts of things that had been going on for decades that were killing industry in this country. And she had to kind of revive the economy after, you know, years and years and years of neglect from uh, from Labour. But with Boris, you know, he's inherited a relatively kind of stable, relatively successful economy. Um, and I wonder, um, 
whether he's sort of short-termist in the way that he runs the country, and maybe that's what people want. You know, he doesn't really paint a big picture. I mean, the only thing he's really got in his armour is this kind of green agenda, which for me and a lot of other people is simply the wrong agenda. But again, that doesn't even seem to be harming him. I mean, when you tell people, look, you're going to have to spend maybe 10,000 quid to get yourself a new boiler, people just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, eh, I don't think so. You know, they don't really buy it. No, I don't think they think, because so many of the environmental targets are all about 2030 or 2035. Mm. And, you know, given the year we've all just lived through, you know, we can barely only focus on the next couple of months and just getting back to some sort of normality. But where I think I would, you know, we are in a much better economic position than we were during the Thatcher years, etc. But I would say, if you look at some of the other problems in our country, the kind of... uh, education we're giving our young children, what our teachers are feeding our young people, and the number of people that go to university rather than perhaps to some sort of technical college where they can get the skills that actually would suit them for the world that we're facing. Um, I think there are some really tough decisions that a good uh, Conservative government that was thinking about the long term would be taking those decisions. The tax burden now in the UK is really high. Mm. You know, I think you've got the Adam Smith Institute on in a little while. And, you know, we only, they have this tax freedom day whereby, you know, they sort of have a day where you reach in in the year, which would be the day you would start earning for yourself. And that was only yesterday. And the Conservative Party used to be the low tax party. But now, through all sorts of uh, hidden taxes, we pay more tax than ever. And ultimately, that will pull down the UK economy. And we, so I think there are things that um, people like you and me, Mike, frankly, should be pressing the Conservative mm. government to deliver because, um, yes, they're popular, but you're not in government for the sake of being in government. You're in government to do something better for your country, yes. to leave the country in a better place than you inherited. Yeah. It. And I'm not quite sure that that's what this government is doing yet. Um, uh, and they should be given because of the pandemic. They've had to focus on that. But let's now move on. And, you know, the, mm. the Tory party conference in in October, let's hear a real agenda from them. Yes. And, and without wishing to sound in any way kind of, um, uh, I don't know, just disappointed with what they've been doing. It's the, you know, I've, I've said, I think that it's the first time a prime minister has been this unassailable for a very long time, as far as I can remember. But it's also the first time when you look upon the way that the prime minister's office seems to work. It's very cliquey. It's very sort of, you know, inside the beltway type people. There's very few, you know, when you think of Thatcher's government, when you think of even Major's government, you know, they had a lot of different voices, a lot of different quite big beasts who were, you know, roaming around. This seems to be Boris and his mates basically running everything. Yeah, and I think that's a really good criticism. And they, of course, got rid of a lot of their heavy, uh, sort of the big beast remainers Mm. when Boris first became became prime minister and that was understandable because they were standing in the way of delivering brexit Mm. but i don't think i think boris johnson perhaps is a little bit stuck in that mindset still you know brexit's been largely delivered now lots of implementation issues still with northern ireland not least but actually brexit's been delivered bring back some of those people who've been round the block once or twice because you learn stuff you know i learn stuff every year what i know i'm a i I hope and believe i know more today than i did 10 or 20 years ago i think you know former prime ministers are the same we seem to chuck them out so early when they've still got a lot to a lot to give and yeah so a few more uh speaking perhaps self-interestedly mike with my gray hairs here but you know (laughs) a few more people with gray hairs 
cameras around the Prime Minister might not be such a bad thing because we all learn in life as we go through. And just having too many uh, people who are barely out of university who've not lived in the you know university of mm. life is not a good way to run the country. No, it really isn't. And when you wonder about all of those uh, sort of advisors who are seemingly very young, and some of them sort of seem to go in one door and out another door and then back in another door, you know, they seem to be the same kinds of people. And we also, we often used to moan about the fact that, you know, politicians didn't have um, much experience of the real world. Well, actually, now we've got a great new swathe of, of politicians, particularly from the old red wall seats up in the north of England. Many of them, yeah. like Lee Anderson, who's come into to Parliament at a quite a late stage of his life, but talks an awful lot of knows about ordinary people and what ordinary people you know want out of life and want out of a government and i think voices like that are really important too absolutely and um i think over time hopefully we'll get you know i keep talking about margaret thatcher but margaret thatcher loved having people around her who disagreed with her and ministers used to say the person they most feared going into an argument with was margaret thatcher because she'd test them Mm. even if um ostensibly they were on her side she'd ask them the tough questions because if you don't ask the tough questions in private when you're putting together a policy inside number 10 people like you mike when politicians come on programs like this they'll be exposed then Mm. and so i don't think there is enough sort of scrutiny and different voices to avoid the group thing that dominic cummings was talking about last week inside downing street and when you have a a rich diversity of people from different backgrounds, people like Lee Anderson, I agree with you on him, um, you'll get that better government that this country needs. Yes, absolutely. Tonight, uh, I don't know whether you'll be watching it, Tim, I'll be watching it out of a sense of duty more than a sense of desire. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer faces Piers Morgan uh, on life stories. I mean, I thought I thought the low point uh, was when he was getting on sort of characters from uh, various, you know, um, celebrity uh, I'm in the jungle type shows, but to get Sir Keir Starmer on, I can't imagine it's going to be an incredibly popular show, but um, are we going to see anything that we didn't know he was like? I don't know. I I think uh, the public's made up its mind about Keir Starmer. My my headline takeaway from him is that you know he served Jeremy Corbyn all through the last Parliament. When he ran for Labour leader, he had pictures of Jeremy Corbyn in his video for leader. Mm. He was the you know presenting himself as close to Corbyn, and then very early on in his leadership, he finally does the right thing and suspends Jeremy yeah. Corbyn from the Labour Party. But it just looks completely insincere to me to, Mm. you know, to be so uh, hypocritical, basically. And I think the British people can smell fakery. And I think with Keir Starmer, they've smelt fakery. And I think it's very hard to recover from that. I think so, too. Apparently, we've got a clip uh, from Life Stories that we can have a look at. So you'll be delighted to know, Tim, that if you don't watch it, you can have a look at this. Dad was totally devoted to her. And I remember being at home and he phoned and he said, your mum's not going to make it. Can you tell the others? And uh, that hit me. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Tim, to have to play that to you. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure Sir Keir Starmer's had lots of trouble uh, with that, as, as many of us have had. But I'm not quite sure what his motivation is for doing it. I mean, you know, Piers Morgan, uh, an old mate of mine, somebody that uh, is a very good interviewer, likes to make people cry. Um, I don't, just don't see the point of politicians doing this kind of thing. No. Well, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a bit pathetic, Mike. I cry when Bambi's on and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so I mean, I cry at the end of Casablanca. 
you know. <laughs> Goodness knows what I'd be like on a programme like this. But, you know, I think it is related to what I've just been saying. You know, he's he's got this reputation for fakery, mm. not being sincere. Yeah. And I think most people recognise that when you talk about your mum or your dad being in hospital ill, there's very few things where we are more real, where we are more human, because mm. that is where life touches us at its hardest. And so... I think they're obviously trying to show the side to him and say, no, he is real, he is human, he is like you and me. Mm. But I'm not sure it will work because when you know there's plenty of people that we know are sincere in our neighbours and our churches and whatever, but we wouldn't want as leader of the country. Yeah. And so Keir Starmer isn't going to be judged on whether he cries when he uh, gets bad news about his mum. We're all going to be emotional in those circumstances. Mm. He's going to be judged on whether he can take the tough decisions for the country, whether he respects something like a Brexit referendum or tries to overturn it, whether he's patriotic in his gut or whether he has to be told to have a union jack on the Labour mm. stage because focus group says that, you know, it's yeah. good to have that sort of thing. And I'm afraid we we realise that when it comes down to the stuff that matters, he's not really the same kind of um, uh patriotic Labour person that no. even someone like Tony Blair was. No, exactly right. And just finally, Tim, I mean, I've asked this question to a lot of people over the last few weeks. Is there a future for the Labour Party in terms of who they represent, where they represent them, uh, having lost Scotland and possibly now the north of England? You know, what is the political landscape going to look like in, say, 10 years? Is there going to be another party that comes out of, um, I don't know, uh, the sort of the liberal left? Is there going to be another party that replaces Labour? Because it seems to me that they're a bit of a busted flush now. Yeah, and so I think Scotland, as you mentioned, Scotland, Mike, you know, so long as they are as back in third place in Scotland as they are at the moment, they're mm. never really going to no. recover. Um, I, I think we should keep watching on the, um, you said, you know, the Green uh, issue was one of the big issues. Yeah. I think we need to keep looking at the Green Party as a possible uh, growing replacement for Labour. Look at the elections in Germany mm. at the moment. The Greens are sort of level pegging as the top party mm. in, in the opinion polls. There's a sort of an intellectual left wing now um, that has sort of have a completely different agenda from the working class um, left of old. Mm. And I think there's now going to be a battle as to whether uh, that sort of political party, it's much harder in Britain because of the first past the post system. Yeah. But I think we're going to see that sort of political party take chunks from the old Liberal Democrat vote, say chunks from sort of metropolitan conservative remain types, as well as the Labour Party. So um, I think it's a good position for the Conservative Party to be in because our vote isn't as splintered as the other parties. But it won't last forever. You know, the politics isn't like that. Um, first past the post is a system whereby if the people want to get a government out, they can get a government mm. out and they'll find a vehicle for it. And mm. um, whether the Labour Party is still that vehicle, time will tell. Yeah, well, let's see if the Greens are going to do much more in this country in politics. They'll have to get a lot less nutty, won't they? <laughs> well, yeah, and the Greens <laughs> in Germany are less nutty. Yes, but perhaps still too nutty for the republic of uh, <laughs> uh, of your of your, your so yes right. i think that's absolutely right well listen tim delightful to talk to you thank you very much indeed for taking the time tim montgomery founder of conservative home former number 10 advisor on a great many things and i think a very good way to start uh, the week in a second way because we started the week technically yesterday but it was bank holiday monday so many of you may not have been able to listen uh, we're starting the week again today tuesday um because the big question for me is, you know, is Boris Johnson completely unassailable? You know, I have gone backwards and forwards 
Rangers on this. I have said at points that he's done uh, terrible things, that he's gone too far. He's a very popular man. There's no question about that. He's done some very good things. And he's been a great leader for the Conservative Party. He's been a really good Prime Minister in some ways. However... In other ways, he has not. But the trouble is, because there's nobody really criticising him within the party, there's absolutely no point in anyone criticising from outside the party, i.e. the Labour benches, because they're completely and utterly useless. Keir Starmer, absolutely hopeless. Um, the Lib Dems have more or less disappeared uh, like the dodo and become extinct. The Green Party have got one MP. Um, the Reform Party, formerly known as the Brexit Party, are going up in the polls, but only uh, from 1% to 3%. You know, so in the end, are we basically stuck... Uh, with a Conservative government run by Boris Johnson for the rest of time. It may well be that that's true, but is that what you want? I'm not sure. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, here's a story for you uh, to get your teeth into. But before I do anything, let me read you this, uh, which actually comes uh, from Not Just. He said, did you know the civil service has a free day holiday today? I don't know why, but the government isn't at work today. This is what they want. More lockdowns, more time at home in their underpants. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there are some people, right, who seem to think that if you get a bank holiday Monday off, you can not bother going back to work on Tuesday. But there is this entire kind of, you know, industry now of people who don't think they need to go to work at all. I've spoken to people who work in the civil service and they say, well, do you know what? We might go back to work in the office, but probably no more than a couple of uh, days a week, maybe. Maybe three. Oh, I don't really fancy travelling and commuting every day. Well, it's not really about what you fancy. I mean, when you leave school, right, if you go to university, if you decide that you want to get a good job, if you become an apprentice, if you learn a trade, you end up going to work. That's what life is about, surely. Now, if you choose not to go to work, that's entirely your affair. Uh, I have to raise four children and have done. Uh, and I tell them all the time, the best thing for you to do uh, for your own well-being, uh, for your own sanity uh, and for your own actual happiness Get yourself a decent job, a job that you enjoy, if you can. I know not everybody can, but get a job that you like doing. It doesn't matter how much it pays, but it will reward you in so many other different ways. And that, surely, is the way forward. But the trouble we've got now in this country is we've got more and more and more people who seem to think it's fine if you just get up in the morning, stagger into the kitchen in your pyjamas, make yourself a cup of coffee, sit down at your laptop, and that's what you do for a living. Well, I'm sorry, that is not going to contribute to the economy. It's not going to contribute to society in general. And quite frankly, uh, you deserve to live down a rabbit hole if that's the way you want to be. Right now, though, let's talk to Matt Kilcoyne because uh, he's from the Adam Smith Institute. An extraordinary story in the Daily Telegraph today in which it has been revealed that 278 different charities are paying their bosses more than the Prime Minister. The highest earner is a bloke called Nick Mokes. You can change that to Mick Noakes, if you like, uh, who apparently works for the Wellcome Trust. He's their chief investment officer. Do you know how much he took home last year? Now, this is a charity, right? These are people who collect money supposedly to do good works, right? He took home £4.64 million last year. Now, if you're giving money to the Wellcome Trust, I suggest you stop immediately. Nearly £5 million quid this guy's making for a charity. What's going on? Matt, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Well, I would say that uh, actually the, the Wellcome Trust is the perfect example of where there, some people who are paid lots of money are delivering lots of value. The Wellcome Trust provides funding to scientific ventures. It provides lots of uh, research into vaccines, uh, which has been incredibly in the news this year. Um, 
But, if you, but what really Nick is, the chief investment officer there, he's the head of a fund. He's the head of a fund which has 25 billion pounds in assets and endowment there. And he's actually, um, the reason why he got paid this much this year is because he um, managed to increase by several billion the amount of funds available to the Wellcome Trust. So in terms of like the actual amount that he's, you know, he's taking home, um, it's comparable to some of the larger funds in London in the private sector. Um, but you want the very best of the best to be looking after money of that kind of scale. Now, there's a difference, I think, between you know, people who take money from charities that are, you know, that are purely public, privately funded. There's a difference between people who are taking money from and, and aren't using it on their charitable purpose. There's a difference between people who are taking it uh, a salary of a modest amount. There's a difference between people who are uh, taking money from charities that actually only really demand money from the, pu from the public sector um, and who demand more and more of the public's time and effort on their pet projects. Um, so I think there's like, I think this is this kind of aggregate measure, which makes people sound like sound very angry because it has lots of big figures and yeah. um, sort of puts lots of things in one basket that shouldn't all be gathered together. Yeah. And I think you may have hit on something there inadvertently because there are two issues here for me. One uh, is that, you know, if you're running a fund, which is similar to a hedge fund of some kind, I, I get all that. But then it's not really a charity, is it? It's actually a business. So why don't they treat it like a business? Because one of the problems for me with charitable status is that you don't pay any tax. So you've now got the Wellcome Trust, which makes a bucket load of money, uh, albeit for a good cause. doesn't really matter to me. But why are they not treated like every other company should be treated, like every other investment fund should be treated? If that's the kind of level they're playing at, then they can't have it both ways, surely. Well, they're not really, because they are, they're not a for-profit company. So they are, they are still, um, they make grants to people who are doing research in scientific endeavors. So they are, they are doing, they are giving money in a charitable way to, other, to endeavors that wouldn't otherwise be financed because it wouldn't necessarily be profitable for the companies involved. Well, including their chief investment officer, obviously. Uh, well, I'm not sure. Like, the question is, like, what would you, who would you rather have in charge of an investment fund worth 25 billion pounds? I mean, that's more money, by the way, than you know, the, the entire DIT, the Department for International Trade spends. It's more money than uh, each year. It's more money than the Her Majesty's Treasury spends each year. So, and we and we want the best of the best to be looking after those kind of funds. And I think like it's actually comparable to say that someone who's looking after that amount of money should have the level of background, the level of scrutiny, the level of expertise. Um, that means that they're able to. there's no scrutiny, Matt. I mean, the charities commission is useless by and large. I mean, they haven't really done anything for as long as I've been alive. I can't remember the last time the charities commission actually did anything worth a fag end. Can you? Um, I think the Charities Commission has an admirable aim. I don't think, however, it's necessarily... <laughs> yeah, but they, never, but they never actually make uh, the admirable aim work, do they? <laughs> I mean, far be it for me to say. All right, let's move away right, from well, the... The thing with the Charities Commission is that it doesn't. Ha it has unlimited time, if not unlimited funds. And so what it can do very easily is constrict... Um, the operations of, of good charities, good works that have become controversial or become in the public eye. Um, and it can drag that out for a very long period of time. And that's actually usually what the Charity Commission ends up doing, which is hampering good works made by charities or, or, or actually, or, or, you know, failing to shut down ones which are, which have got yeah. um, good and well, well, let, 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 let's, let's, let's get a bit more specific, shall we? What about Oxfam? 
and the history that they have had over the past few years, uh, very much exposed by the Times newspaper, um, all sorts of ghastly allegations, uh, which are not untrue allegations, uh, accusations about uh, child sex being uh, paddled for, uh, for, for aid, uh, all sorts of prostitution stories from Haiti uh, to, to Africa. You know, the Charities Commission has done nothing to in any way punish Oxfam uh, or clip its wings, uh, and it's still going on. You know, there was a story only two weeks ago, I think, that they've got the same problem going on uh, in East Africa as they had in Haiti, and not least because some of the same personnel are still working there. Well, you've lost me. Sorry. Um, the, you in terms of phone. I certainly wouldn't ever sit here and, and, you know, congratulate Oxfam on running a tight ship in, in, in tough places. Um, but the problem for Oxfam was that they have not changed the incentives that exist in these in these high stress situations, and the kind of people who are attracted to those places are kind can include some people who mm. don't necessarily want um, the best for you know the local area. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that the vast majority of people there are doing trying to do no no work. yeah but, now, that's Oxfam, not, but we're not so, yeah but we're not talking now, about Oxfam, yeah, on but, the other but, hand. But, I, would, I mean, I would sit there and say that Oxfam aren't you know aren't necessarily meeting the objectives of the original founders, right? They're not dealing with with famine. They're not dealing with uh, real uh, levels of deprivation. They quite often talk about sort of um, relative deprivation. They quite often talk about the UK, though it's on the same par as Haiti or, or Tanzania or whatever. I'm not sure, however, that you know, they're not necessarily just an organization that's trying to get money from the public. They're actually trying to get money from the public purse. Um, and that I have much yes, more but of my issue, my, my issue with Oxfam, Matt, is not so much... I mean, I've already spoken about Oxfam, and we know that what they've done is disgraceful, and, and nobody would, would think anything other than that. But what have the Charity Commission done about it, is my point, and they haven't done anything. And the Charity Commission is well, supposed these... to police these people. They should take their charitable status away. Because, again, it comes back to the same argument. Why are they not paying any tax? Why are they setting themselves up as a charitable institution where loads of people make a bucket load of money, uh, people who, in uh, good faith, give money to them in the hopes that they're going to be saving somebody's life in some godforsaken you know, country with no water in it. And yet... Uh, what it's doing instead is paying for child sex and paying for six-figure salaries for the fat cats who work in a very nice office in London. Thank you very much. Allegedly for some of those. But in terms There's of no the, alleged in it, mate. Um, Sorry, Matt. No, there isn't yeah, any alleged in that. No, there isn't. It's, okay. in, terms of, in terms of... I'm not going to sit here and defend Oxfam. That's not my job. Well, I, I don't think, you I would, I don't think you'd like want to be known for that, Matt, really. I mean, I think you'd probably no. think you're a lot better than that, to be honest. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could turn up in the office, frankly, and say that anyway. But that's neither here nor there. In terms of, in terms of, you know, do they do they fulfil their charitable purpose? Do, that's really down to people who are donating to the site, right? You know, I don't think, like, I'm not really sure. We, I want a state censor to sit there and say what is charitable, or not charitable. But I that's think that what they do now. But that's what they the do. The real do. problem. No the, the, no, the real problem. Well, I know that that exists, and I don't necessarily think it's a good system. Um, I would say, however, that like what would be better is if there were fewer public funds going to these basic private charities um, who then use it to lobby for more public funds to be given to them in a sort of never ending gravy trade. Mm. And that's for lots of the development charities. That's for lots of, you know, the Oxfam's and, and, and Cavalds of this world. But like, that's for, for, the, for, the, for, for most people then. They sit there and say the actual accountability, which is between donors and the, the charity trustees and, and the charities running, um, that's broken because the reliance is some, it's suddenly not on doing good works that the donors care about but and, and the funds are used in a proper manner, but 
that they can make a good enough public case, public plea using, you know, the public service broadcaster like the BBC uh, to push their private agendas. And that's very, and that's the real perniciousness that exists in the heart of uh, UK. I, think, I mean, I think the problem is, Matt, and maybe we can agree on this, is that the charity sector now is an entire industry. And it's no longer, you know, uh, a nice little business where you help people uh, by raising some money from some very dedicated uh, people shaking a tin in front of you in the high street. Uh, some old ladies giving their spare change over to the charity so that they can help people in, in, in much worse states than we are. It's not like that anymore. It is a massive international money making industry. And I think we ought to say yeah. that and admit that and then say, well, what should we do about that? I mean, when you hear, for example, the Royal Opera House uh, pays their top music director. 839 grand a year i'm sorry you know i'm not giving money oh, to I'm some really. bloke i'm not giving some money to some bloke so he can buy a nice house in notting hill just because he claims to I'm be absolutely. working for a, for a charity it's ridiculous I'm, I'm absolutely with you mike i don't think that opera should be given special favors um i don't believe that uh, you know it's one of the people's priorities as as far as sort of his government mm. that the, 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 the brass and um, basically let's be honest Sit there and sneer at the like very existence of the rest of us. Yeah. Um, should be given a you know a tax break um, rather than paying their fair share, exactly. or rather you know efficient use of of London space because there's plenty of things that want to be based in that part of central London. Um, if and if the Opera House can't attract um, the kind of you know kind of clientele that can fund it, mm. um, then it shouldn't be operating. No. But like, and, and, and as said, so you know, the idea that someone should sit there in Austin Hill having a nice life at the back of the rest, that's, that's a real, that gets sticks in the craw. Mm. And actually it undermines a lot of the charitable efforts of, you know, of organizations. You know, a friend of mine is a trustee of a charity um, who funds scholarships for orphans in, in Zimbabwe. Um, he does this in his spare time. He's also, you know, he's also a warden of the church and he's a, he's a banker at RBS. Right. And that's as it should be. And he shouldn't take a fee, right? Exactly. No, he doesn't take a fee. He does it for free. Um, and it's, but it's like that is one of those ones where he does the accounts for free. And he makes sure that they've got the, you know, the kids have got a, an education. They've got, um, they've got accommodation that they've got travel and um, that they're able to take advantage of that education to the right. full. Um, and it's a small organization and it very much, you know, funds directed. Some of the larger organizations, which are effectively just doing conference after conference after conference, political speech, whatever. That's not really the point of it. And, you know, the, I have to put of an interest here. You know, the Adam Smith Institute has a, has a charitable arm, mm. um, which deals with, you know, we send books to schools. We fund postgraduate um, scholarships. Uh, we do a Freedom Week. If your kids wish to learn about uh, free market economics, if they want to learn about the basis, the basis of li British liberty. But that's not a charity, though. Why is that charitable? That's, that's your propaganda, well, that is isn't it, man? It's not. It's not. It's pushing your propaganda, which is fine. I mean, Mike, welcome to push it, but don't claim Mike, it's charitable. It is. It is. Most people in the UK haven't learned about enough, far enough, about the, the Scottish Enlightenment, about um, our inheritance as a, as a British people in liberty. No, I get all that. Listen, I've got no problem with you telling people also, about education, it. Well, education is education is a charitable endeavour, and I would that's, I would definitely stand up on that but they but it shouldn't have charitable tax-free status is my point well i mean that is to be honest with you it's not one of those things where it's like it doesn't it, it in terms of what the benefit does the does that derive um it derives some some level of like a lower level of business rates 
Um, it doesn't mean that no one's paying any tax. If you're doing work for either the business or the, or the charity, or if you're dealing with that, if you're working for Oxfam or whatever, you're still they're still paying national insurance. They're still paying. Uh, you're, you're, you know, they're still being yeah, but that's, that's still small paying. potatoes, man. No, no, no. no, no. These are, you know, these are you can't. Amount. I mean, you're with the Adam Smith well, Institute. Like, I, mean, I know you don't like paying tax anyway. I mean, I don't like paying tax. I mean, I can say that I'm a charitable institution because of all the good work that I do for all the people that listen to my <laughs> show. But you know, unfortunately, the government doesn't see it that way, and they tax me at the highest rate they can. Oh, you should have a have a word with Uncle Rupert because I'm sure he could get you listed as a charity and have you a think? you could have a great yeah, right. I think you I mean definitely provide the service to your listeners. There's no question. Uh, if not the case. No question. Matt, listen, Absolutely. great to talk to you, but I'm gonna get in trouble uh, with all sorts of people if I don't let you go now because we're running very late. Matt Coolcoin from the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, you might agree with him. You might think that he's right that all these charitable institutions are doing great work, therefore they shouldn't pay any tax. Well, I don't think he is right. In fact, quite frankly, I think he's completely wrong. He's never been more wrong in his life. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're going to talk now, though, uh, to Rob Clark from the Henry Jackson Society because there's a story on the front of the Telegraph today uh, about Dominic Raab. He's going to criticise Russia's aggressive behaviour at a NATO summit today um let's uh, talk to rob and find out what it's all about rob very good uh, morning to you morning mike how are you yeah very well sir thanks for talking to us um i didn't actually know there was a nato summit until this morning but i'm sure you did um this is ahead of the g7 um and it's ahead of a big sort of oil conference or something that's happening in russia at the moment as well um what does dominic raab mean by this and what, what's he what's his message effectively uh, okay, sure. So the the NATO summit itself is uh, is a precursor to several big events happening this year. One of which is the uh, withdrawal down of, uh, of troops from Afghanistan, NATO troops from Afghanistan. Mm. Also, climate change and uh, and other regional issues. Um, and obviously, with the the recent escalation in tensions on the Ukrainian border uh, with Russia that we saw in uh, March and April, um, that's not completely dissolved. Uh, Ukraine mm. uh, still estimate there's up to 100,000 Russian troops. Uh, on the border. Uh, and of course, we've got the uh, large uh, annual military um, uh, exercises uh, in Russia uh, in September, um, Zapad 2021. So that's the, the Western region, the Western military region for Russia. Yeah. That incorporates uh, the Baltics. Uh, Belarus is going to be heavily involved. And of course, obviously, what happened uh, recently with the uh, the Ryanair flight mm. and, uh, and Belarus's um, actions there, this feeds into the broader narrative of um, actually, w- what are we going to start doing that's more proactive in terms of combating not just Russian, but also authoritarian states 
uh, who seek to exploit these uh, these weaknesses in, in conventional Western thinking. Yes, because I was talking to Peter Hitchens, funnily enough, about Belarus just yesterday and saying that, you know, it's important that we don't lose sight of some of these stories because quite often the story, like the Ryanair one you talk about, uh, pops up and then it sort of disappears off the radar. What's your understanding of where they are with that? Is, he, is, is the blogger still being held? Uh, it's actually a really important point to make how uh, these incidents that may seem in isolation at the time, um, they do tend to lose uh, traction both mm. in the media and importantly in policy discourse and the political appetite quite quickly. Um, in terms of the current situation, um, the uh, the Belarusian government are going to be facing fresh UK sanctions uh, for what happened, not just to the, uh, the individual, the blogger who was detained, um, but also on, uh, on hijacking an international flight as well between EU capitals. Mm. Um, the UK has been quite uh, vocal in this so far, Dominic Raab in the Foreign Office or Foreign Commonwealth Office, um, but also more needs to be done. And I mm. think uh, there's certain politicians in the UK, um, for example, Tom Tugendhat, who's the chair of the, uh, the Foreign, Foreign Affairs Select Committee, are very vocal in how the UK should be doing more on this. And there's actually a lot more that the UK mm. can be doing. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll see a change uh, over the next uh, over the next few days with that. And is this all leading up as well to this possible uh, summit meeting between um, Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden in Geneva, perhaps? So that's really interesting. I think it's pending for the 16th of June, so a little over two weeks away. Uh, the pre-negotiations or the pre-discussions are already underway between the various officials. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see uh, what happens uh, after that uh, on the on the uh, on the mm. outset of that. Um, now, naturally, that was raised in uh, immediate response to the provocations with uh, with the Ukraine uh, Crimea border that we saw, like I say, in March and April. Right. Um, again, a lot of people have thought that those have now uh, died down and de-escalated. There's been almost daily um, incidences on the border of uh, the ceasefire breaking uh, due to Russian or Russian-backed separatists uh, breaking the ceasefire. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see actually what comes out on that summit with uh, with President Biden and Putin. Right. And, and and how do you think Putin is going to be responding to this um, Dominic Raab sort of manoeuvre today? Oh, I mean, it's going to be a classic Putin sort of uh, trying to just dismiss it as uh, either lies, provocation, um, increased sort of Western interference, NATO interference in, in Russian domestic mm. affairs. Um, so I think we can expect quite a quite a uh, almost a, a swift rebuttal mm. from from Putin, something, if not Putin himself. Something incredibly negative. Listen, uh, Rob, thanks very much indeed. Sorry we haven't got a lot of time today, but we'll talk to you again soon uh, about more of these important uh, sort of intergenerational and uh, international stories because we do have to keep an eye on all of that, particularly what's going on in Belarus, uh, as we said yesterday. Rob Clark from the Henry Jackson Society. There, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say it's now time to talk to a man that we haven't spoken to for a little while. I don't know why we haven't. Uh, Simon Calder, travel editor at the Independent, is back. Simon, a very good uh, morning to you. Uh, yeah, good morning. Um, and as you always, Mike, I'd like to try and speak to you from the uh, uh, Rock of Gibraltar. And that's exactly <laughs> where you will find me um, this sunny morning. Well, actually, it's looking a bit cloudy if you mm. look across there. Um, you've got Morocco in the background over there. Uh, all around and of course I cannot go even 50 metres into Spain because if I did then I would uh, need to uh, self-isolate for 10 days so I'm here all the monkeys are uh, 
up to their usual monkey business and um, <laughs> all is well with the world here at least. Well, listen, I'm delighted to also report to you, Simon, that we are having apparently currently the hottest day of the year here in the UK. Yes. So so people have been enjoying for a, a very unusually bank holiday weekend, uh, which normally is awful. Uh, it's actually been fantastic. So I'm, I'm very happy that you've been able to travel and get over there. Uh, but you've chosen uh, the worst weekend to do it. I know, and, and uh, well, it's, it's great that the weather is good and people are able to enjoy the sun in the UK. Uh, let's hope that it lasts all summer. But I must say, the whole of the British overseas territory, Mike, is full of people who just wanted to escape and live a bit of the Mediterranean lifestyle. And uh, uh, particularly in a place where they're 100% vaccinated, uh, very few rules on mask wearing, and um, it's almost uh, kind of back to the future. Yes. And, uh, travel well i must admit i mean i was in I've, I've said this to a few people i was in hyde park on uh, saturday and if you'd been walking around there you would have thought that it was almost like before the pandemic it was that busy people were sitting around eating ice creams cycling walking you know on the serpentine there was you know all sorts of people um but uh, but it's actually it's a bit of a false dawn it seems to me in terms of the travel business because there's still not many places outside of the uk that we can actually go are there no, and we were expecting to find out more from the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps on uh, Thursday about where we might be able to go to. But um, I, I've now just this morning spoken to the Department of Transport and they say, well, no, it might not be Thursday. Um, it will be sometime this week. Mm. And I infer from what I know about uh, government that it certainly won't be today, won't be tomorrow, maybe Friday. Yeah. Um, and of course, the travel industry and travellers are very, very fed up. They simply just want to know what the... Uh, what the situation is and where they might be able to go um, in the lovely month of June. Yes. I hear this morning as well uh, something that we've talked about before, that Heathrow has finally got a dedicated uh, terminal for you uh, bad people coming in from red-list yes. countries. I mean, my first thought when I heard that was, well, why are we allowing people from red-list countries in at all? <laughs> well, um, that because, Mike, um, if you are... Uh, some countries have completely banned their own people from coming back or say there's a quota system. So yeah. Australia, for instance, they're only letting uh, Australians back little by little. Mm. Now, um, the UK has always taken the view, if you've got the right of residence here, so if you're a UK citizen, Irish citizen, or you've got uh, uh, residence permission here, then you can always come home. Yes. And uh, therefore, people are doing just that because they're allowed to. Now, Heathrow has got lots of flights coming in from red list countries, mm. particularly the UAE and uh, India. Um, and initially they said, oh, we got the flights coming in, but you can't travel on them. And I said, well, that's mad, yeah. frankly, because you won't be able to tell who's arrived from red list countries. And uh, furthermore, they'll be going through other places and uh, therefore... Um, causing more risk mm. to themselves and others. So they said, OK, we will allow passengers on those red list flights. So they will now, from today, come into uh, Heathrow. Uh, they'll be taken to Terminal 3, yeah. which is dormant at the moment. They'll be processed and bussed off to uh, quarantine hotels. Now, the trouble is, there's nothing to make you come in from a red list country by direct. And right. indeed, many people are unable to do that because there aren't simply any flight links. So coming from South America, for instance, you might well come in through uh, lovely Lisbon in yes. Portugal, which is on the green list, and you'll be mingling with people who um, have been in Portugal, even though you've been on the red list. So it's a bit of a help, maybe, but um, ultimately it doesn't get us particularly far. And uh, clearly 
Um, it's just just another bit of muddle. Well, exactly. And do you think this will keep going on for a while now? Because we were hearing that there might be some kind of deal brokered at the G7 um, in the next week or so between the US and the UK vis a vis a travel corridor of some kind. I mean, I'd like to think, would you not, um, that Boris and, and, and Grant Chaps and others will go. Do you know what? You know, let's let's think about telling people that they might be able to travel or they can travel to various countries in July. Oh, oh look, yeah. The government is doing all it can to minimise expectations for the first round of changes. And ultimately, I mean, just just because a place is on the green list doesn't make it easy. So um, to come here, for instance, I had to have a, a fill in a passenger locator form to come here. Um, I needed to take a test when I arrived. Mm. When I go back, I've got to take another test before I'm allowed on the plane and then pre-book a post-arrival test, if you see what I mean, uh, for when after I got back to the UK. That's going to cost me 100 quid and loads of hassle. So um, it's uh, being on the green list is good, but not brilliant. Um, it will slightly expand. And then what we are going to see, I think, from uh, probably July onwards is that actually a lot more countries will be on the green list. And crucially, there will be a lot fewer restrictions in, uh, that, that simply are costing a lot of money, involving a lot of hassle. And uh, some people say they're not doing any good. Just one snippet here. I asked um, uh, the people at the airport, which you can sort of just see over there. Uh, when I have my test, um, oh, so how many positives have you had? Um, you know, how many did you get? I think they might say you know, 5% or 1% or something. And they said, we haven't had one since January, which is good news. <laughs> that is course. good news. Well, brilliant. Um, there have also been calls here for the testing price to change so that people yes. are not being forced, because particularly if you are travelling with four or five members of your family, it starts to mount up. So, I mean, hopefully they'll see the sense of that, because I'm told that lots of other countries who require tests don't allow companies to charge people what we're being charged. Oh, sure. Well, if you go to Maharashtra state, um, where Mumbai is in yeah. India, they've got a maximum price of 600 rupees. That's about six pounds mm. um, that anybody can ch- charge for a PCR test. Uh, there are some people getting very, very rich on the uh, government's yes. travel requirements at the moment. Uh, they would say, well, it's a scarce resource. We're providing a service. If you don't want it, then um, there's plenty of other suppliers. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've just got an email. Well, yeah, from- I mean, they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, the trouble is that there is such a thing as gouging the public, you know, which is not really to be encouraged, surely. Oh, sure. And and um, uh, I've just got a, an email from SpiceJet, my favourite Indian airline, and they say, yeah, you don't want to pay 600 rupees for your test. We'll do it for 299. Excellent. So that's £3. Yeah. Um, See, there's the free market so, in operation. Yes. And, and so what will happen is that um, when we find that we don't need so many PCR tests, suddenly the price will collapse and yes. you'll be able to get one for small change. But at the moment, um, well, they're making making uh, PCR pay while the sun shines. Quite. And how long are you in Gibraltar for? Um, what's your plan? Are you planning to go somewhere else from there? Well, planning to be here till Friday. Nice. But um, if uh, something exciting happens, like Spain gets put on mm. the um, on the green list, well, I may be sometime, Mike. Yes. And I mean, I've never been to Gibraltar apart from, as I said before, on a very short visit where I walked across the border and I think bought some cigarettes or something um, many, many years ago when I still smoked. So is there enough to keep you busy there for four oh, or five days? Loads, yeah. So just, just to give you some idea, um, there's some happy holiday makers mm. waving at their camera. Yes. Um, Hello. And they are uh, uh, enjoying the amazing views that you get from here. Right. Um, and... Um, uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's considering it's two and a half square miles. There's an awful lot packed into it. Yeah. Um, loads of history, loads of uh, nature, loads of adventure, and um, it's just yeah, 
it's is there a national uh, is there a national is there a national dish that you can uh, and the national about? dish i think would be fish and chips right um but uh yeah uh, the, the the great thing is that it's very multicultural so you can get lots of moroccan food mm. morocco's 12 nice. miles over there almost enough to touch uh loads of spanish food of course yes. so tapas and everything Bit of um, and i'm going for some japanese tonight oh very nice think. Very nice. Thank Excellent. You. Well, have a lovely time, Simon. Uh, great to Thank see you. you. Great to talk to you again, as ever. Simon Calder reporting in live from Gibraltar, the rock of Gibraltar, no less, uh, where it looks a little bit windy, uh, but rather nice, actually, I have to say. Um, lots of people here, of course, heading for the sea, heading for the beaches, because it is the hottest day of the year so far, we are told. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us go to South Wales and catch up with Jamie Jenkins, our favourite statistician. Jamie, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, not too bad. I, I think I'm one of the casualties of my teeth. I know you've been talking a lot lately yeah. about uh, teeth. I, I managed to see a dentist last week, but one of my fillings fell out during COVID and non-repairable, so they, they ripped it out last week. So Oy. a bit of pain there, but uh, I managed to at least see a dentist. Mike. Well, at least you didn't have to rip it out yourself, which I think is what a lot of people have been reduced to doing. Don't, let me, don't get me started on trying to see a doctor, though, because the BMA are amongst the people who are now saying, oh, we must be very careful, cautious. You know, uh, these are the same people uh, who won't see uh, patients in their surgeries in case they catch COVID. Yeah, well, but some of the stats, Mike, the the impact of that is, is is quite dramatic, actually, because people not being able to see the GP has actually meant that I think Cancer Research UK, and I've been talking about them separately this morning, but for Cancer Research UK, they did some analysis of the number of people who probably haven't been forward for screening programs yes. or been referred by their GP for things like cancer. And one of the remarkable stats over the last year, Mike, if you just look at England alone, uh, we would probably expect about 315,000 people a year to start treatment for mm. cancer, but it was 40,000 less in the last year. So there's that missing 40,000 people who are probably sadly have cancer at the moment. Yes. that hasn't started treatment because they may not have even a found out that they've got it or B kind of the services have been so slow. They haven't even started the treatment. And, and there's all these wider things, mm. Mike, that we talked about before me, the, the national health service. Well, it's been more the National COVID service for the last 12 months. Well, it has, and to the detriment of an awful lot of things, not simply cancer uh, and, 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 and what you might regard as other diseases, but things like mental health as well, which you raised on your Twitter account yesterday. Yeah, so, so the ONS kind of do a survey of people across Britain, and, and what they do there is they, they ask them if they're suffering from, say, what you would class as depressive symptoms. Yeah. So it's not a formal diagnosis of a mental health issue, but it's coming straight from the people now. Before the pandemic, it was around one in 10 people were reporting mm. this. But they did the recent numbers lately, and it's more than doubled now. It's mm. about one in five. And if you actually multiply that percentage then up by the population, there could be over 10 million people, Mike, in the UK at the moment who've got kind of a mental health issue. And there was a story, it's not really covered much in the mainstream media, but there's a story that ITV actually did cover a few weeks ago that in the northwest of England, where we've, we've seen this rise of cases in the Indian variant, the number of people, uh, sorry, the patients who've got mental health issues, all the beds are full. Yeah. And, uh, and we're seeing what we're across most of the health system across the country is more and more people going into hospital now. So we've got more patients and now in parts of the country, in particular Wales, as I've been looking at in particular there, more patients in hospital than we had at the height of the pandemic yeah. in wave two, because people are going to visit because they were too scared to go before. And, but the problem we're now having is that people are saying that, well, we can need to continue with restrictions in case more people go to the NHS because of COVID 
Right. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I was hearing somebody making an argument the other day saying, oh, well, we have to be careful now because the hospital is starting to fill up again with people who weren't treated before because of COVID. And now they're coming in to get treatment and giving them beds. And, you know, we might be overwhelmed if we're not careful. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. You know, the health service is there to help sick people. If it hasn't got the capacity for helping sick people, you know, maybe it's the case that they're still social distancing the beds or something. I don't even know. But surely we can't keep lockdown because the hospital system is inadequate and inefficient well part of this mike is going to be kind of decades of underfunding from different governments from different parties except you know you've got conservatives in in england you've got wales running it mm. we've got the tories there uh, sorry um, labor running in wales so there's going to be lots of different factors at play but i think you know if you just look at the data mike as well in terms of a e attendances mm. so in england you would normally get before the pandemic around two million people a month rocking up at a and e now after a month into the pandemic last year in April, that fell below a million. So right. there's a million people who just didn't turn up an accident, an emergency. It's been creeping back up, uh, which is obviously good that people are seeking mm. out healthcare if they need it. It's still about 200,000 patients below. Some people would argue, Mike, that maybe it was too high anyway and people were going to A&E when they didn't actually have an accident or an emergency and they were going there because they couldn't get treatment elsewhere. But there are patients missing all over the system and waiting lists are going up. Mm. And and going back to your story, Mike, that you've been running for a few weeks about GP diagnosis. Yeah. Well, waiting lists have gone up. But remember, a lot of patients haven't even been in to see their GP the last year. So there's a lot of undiagnosed health problems in the country. So you think if waiting lists are over 5 million in England now, 500,000 in Wales, if they do get to the point where you get to see your GP and they diagnose you, it's going to go up even more. So mm. We've got to start factoring in, Mike, that we've got this vaccine rollout. We've got nearly half of England have had two doses of the vaccine, of adults, that is. Three quarters across the country have had one dose at least. So we've backed the vaccine. Deaths are really low. And on those statistics, Mike, I think the important one to focus on is the number of deaths for the time of year compared to the average. Mm. And it's been below average now for over two and a half months. And if you take the period from March up to, say, May now, about 7.5% below average. There's more deaths in actually in, in April from flu and pneumonia mm. than there was from COVID. Yeah. Well, this is it. And, I mean, they've now had the Indian variant since about the beginning of April. So quite a substantial amount of time to be able to study what it's doing. The idea that they're now saying somehow cases are going up uh, by 28% uh, that today's uh, figure is, uh, or they've gone up double uh, since the last time we measured them last week. You know, I mean, it doesn't really quite ring true. And what we also know is that all the people in hospital in the north of England uh, because of COVID are people who have not been vaccinated, whether they've chosen not to be vaccinated or whether they're too young to have been vaccinated. What we do know is if you have been vaccinated, there's a very low risk that you're going to have a problem. Yeah, so if we look at the Indian variant in a bit more detail, I think what some of the modelers models do predict, Mike, which and maybe the, the models are broken now. Or we, we weren't a big fan of them before, but mm. what you would see is that you start seeing a rise in cases, and then if they keep doubling and doubling and doubling, then you get these really scary numbers that we've seen on some of the government briefings over the past year or so. Yeah. We have seen an increase over the last year, but what the, the main headlines don't tell you is the majority of that increase has actually been among younger people. So if you look at the cases in England, say, over the last seven days, around a third of them are for people under the age of 20 and about half of them are for people under the age of 25. And we know these are less likely to lead to serious illnesses. Now, the concern people have, which is why we say, well, we need to stop these people mixing, is that it leads to wider community transmission 
and then you start passing it on to older people. So mm -hmm. I've looked at the older age group as well. Now, at the height of the pandemic in wave two in January, about 10% of all the cases coming back, Mike, were over the age of 70. And the reason I've chosen that age group is, remember, 83% of all these deaths have been people over the age of 70. Yeah. So it's about 10% in January. It's falling every single week now, and it's down to 2.3%. So in the last seven days, 300 people have been diagnosed with COVID through the system of testing over the age of 70. In the seven-day period, it was 35,000, Mike, yeah. when you go back. And remember, in January, they didn't have the vaccine. So the 300 people now have had the vaccine, which right. is what you said. The NHS bosses are saying they're not seeing people going into hospital having serious illnesses leading into intensive care. So the break between kind of cases and looking at cases and then seeing deaths is clearly there. So I think people saying we need to take a whole look at the data, et cetera. I don't know what data they're waiting for, Mike, because the, the vaccine companies have said that this variant, the vaccines work against, and the vaccines are far more potent and better than flu vaccines are. Yeah. Well, they are. We know that because we know that they are far more effective. But, you know, again, looking at the stories in the papers today, called to delay reopening amid a fear of the third wave. And these are scientists, right? Professor Ravi Gupta being one of them, uh, who's a member of Nerve Tag, I think, you know, saying, oh, but there's a big danger that, you know, we're going to get a third wave and it could be worse than the second wave. And you're kind of going, where are you getting all this from? You know, because it doesn't make any sense. Why are they continuing to put the fear of God into people to say, you know, we never, we may we effectively what they say, we may we may never get out of this. Well, there's two things, Mike, that you need to bring together on this. The the constant fear of different waves will fuel that mental health issue that we yeah. were just talking about. So no wonder people are kind of scared. A recent ONS survey has shown as well, Mike, that uh, despite the shielding restrictions being eased. There are just as many patients shielding now as they were before. And then you turn on the, you know, the TV or the radio, there are constant reminders from government, you know, about getting vaccines or stay safe, et cetera. Yeah. So it's a last scared out there. And then think you, you know, that you, we we they've tried this over the last year of using a lot of scare tactics. And at times maybe that's been the right thing, but who knows? But at the moment, the case is really low. I plot a map on my Twitter profile that looks at case rates across the country. There are these hotspots in the north of England, in the northwest. But they are generally among younger people. Yeah, we've had outbreaks in Wales, Mike, where we've seen kind of schools closing because we've seen an outbreak. But the good thing there, I've tracked them in, say, South Wales and Newport and Cardiff, is that about a week after they haven't gone out wide into the community, they've come back down. So I think it's a bit early to be starting to worry about the whole of the UK or say England in particular needs to ease back on rowing yeah. back on restrictions because of rising cases in the northwest. You know, we've looked at data and dates. We've talked about that before, Mike. I don't think they've been following data or dates. No. They've come. The June the 21st has kind of come up because Boris Johnson said several months ago, we'll have everything aimed and, and, and ended by June the 21st. But on the whole, they haven't been following data and dates because some of the restrictions haven't been warranted. You look at the wedding industry and yeah. you've been talking about, well, you know, it's, 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 it's devastating for people. Well, of course it is. And I mean, when you look at some of the stuff that Gupta has actually said, uh, it will probably take longer than earlier waves to emerge because of the fact that we do have quite high levels of vaccination in the population. So there may be a false sense of security. Well, hang on. I mean, the whole point of that means that the reason that people are not getting infected as much is because they're vaccinated. Why would that change, you know, in three months time? Because they'll still be vaccinated and they still won't be getting the disease, surely. Well, I think with these vaccines, Mike, I, I was looking on the World Health Organization website this morning. And so what they say is a flu vaccine is about 40 to 60 percent effective. Mm -hmm. and, and we know people sadly die from the flu. 
and we saw a big rise in deaths around 2018, 19, because the vaccine yeah. that was rolled out that year wasn't as kind of as potent as mm. what it would have been in a normal year. And the latest year, Mike, they even got names for these flu variants. So the latest flu vaccine has been designed to combat an Hawaiian variant, oh, yeah. an Hong Kong variant, a, a Washington variant. So so they change the flu vaccine all the time. So we're going to see constantly see different variants. Yeah. But we, if we'd been monitoring, Mike, this is what I think, if we'd been testing people for the last 30 years for the flu and we had the same kind of scientists and, and this daily kind of media looking at the latest cases, we probably would have been shutting down every winter for the last 30 years, yeah. shutting the economy down. But we've got to learn to live with it. And as you're right, we've got majority of the people with antibodies. We will see a, a third wave of cases probably, Mike. And when I say that, we will see a rise in cases because the, whilst the vaccine reduces transmission, it doesn't get rid of it all completely. But we should stop looking at cases and plotting these and look more on the hospitalizations and the deaths. And as I say, talk of a third wave when deaths have been below average for two and a half months is a bit premature mm. and it's a bit kind of irresponsible in terms of i think when you're looking in terms of people's mental health and scaring and, and we know mike that over kind of seven hundred thousand people approaching eight hundred thousand people have lost jobs over yeah. the last year well that's it and then when people like professor gupta say oh let's give it another couple of months another couple of months is the difference between life and death for an awful lot of businesses you know they can't reopen like wedding businesses event businesses nightclubs you know music uh, businesses all sorts of uh, hospitality who are still only really grimly hanging on because they still can't get back to normal in terms of getting all the people they want into a particular restaurant or into a particular bar you know they're still um you know room for improvement in terms of what they can do and as i said yesterday i was out and out and about saturday, saturday and sunday uh, in london and monday as well um and quite frankly it was absolutely rammed you know it was almost as though the, the lockdown is no longer a thing i don't know what it was like in wales but certainly the beaches are all full of people the parks are all full of people nobody seems to be wearing masks as much as they used to be and surely if there was ever going to be something to go wrong it would it would be sort of now yeah, and if you remember, Mike, we saw a massive drop in cases last year. We had that first wave mm. throughout the summer. Um, we were, you know, we had that eat out to help out scheme, which I don't think dramatically pushed up the Nothing virus. Changed. I mean, the only time it changed was when they sent all the kids back to school in September and all the, the university students back to their universities. That was when the spike came. Yeah, so it's two weeks into September, we started mm. seeing the spike. And the issue we had there then, Mike, was that they were then mixing more in the community and then all the people were catching the virus. It was going into care homes, yeah. through staff and into hospitals. But the majority of people are vaccinated now. And and, and you, you bang on. So if you say, let's wait another two months, well, in two months' time, we'll be talking about a different variant mm. from another part of the world right. because this is a virus that mutates and will continue to mutate. So we could just put this off forever. We could just be in you know, 2025 yeah. talking about... Well, let's just wait another two months. Yeah. Because and here's the thing for you, right? They're talking about the Vietnamese variant now, right? Now, uh, by a complete and utter coincidence, I was watching a report this morning uh, from an MP down on Dover's coast where a lot of people are coming in uh, as uh, on the migrant boats. And a lot of the people that they're seeing at the moment are coming in are, are young, unaccompanied women, many of them from Vietnam. Now, I'm not saying the two things are connected, but it's worth looking into, isn't it? Well, one of the problems you've got with obviously all the migrants coming in via boats, they're not going to be socially distancing as no, they're coming in. And, and it's a very difficult thing. I, I, you would hope that people, even if they're coming in via these illegal routes, Mike, but they are being tested and being isolated. So I don't know exactly what's going on there. But yeah, but maybe that's where they're finding the Vietnam variant and they're testing them and they're finding it and they're going, oh, now we've got a variant from Vietnam. Guess why? Oh, somebody just came in from Vietnam with COVID. 
Well, well, the thing is, Mike, we keep looking for different variants and we keep testing loads of different people. I'm right. staggered by the amount of testing that's continuing to go well, on because the, yeah, the number I mean, of... the school kids are all still being told that when you're off on half term, make sure you test yourself twice a week. I mean, it's madness. No, I, I've been quite critical of these lateral flow tests of the children who keep getting, Mike, because, you know, I think we'd be far better spending the money on trying to, you know, I, I, my children haven't seen a dentist for over a year, so mm. I'd rather get more kind of dental treatment going on. Well, as, as we speak, right, a mate of mine has sent me a picture of a tooth that he's just pulled out of his own head because uh, he oh. said, I've just done exactly what you've described. Incredible. No, and I think, Mike, it, it, it doesn't help in terms of you, you guys have been covering it quite well in terms of talk radio, in terms of the wider harms, mm. because ultimately there's a story I saw on the BBC News the other evening where they were saying in an emergency, only phone 999 in an emergency. Well, I thought, well, hang on now. I'm sure that's always been the case. You only phone. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, <laughs> but it's like the BMA saying to me, you know, we, 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 we'd rather you didn't come to the uh, the doctor's surgery if you're, if you're not well. You kind of go, sorry, uh, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Well, I, yeah, and I think part of the problem we've got, Mike, is that, and you've been covering it on the show for, for several months now, is, is the opposition party as well in, t- in terms of who's putting any opposition on the government because there is no opposition on the government. So Keir Starmer, what's his view? I was looking at the, the data just as a side point in terms of the politics, mm. Mike, as well. So so obviously Labour are losing ground in the north, uh, but the Lib Dems in some of the Remain areas of the south of England are picking up some seats yeah. from the Tories in the council elections. But where are the Lib Dems in all of this as well? You know, I, I, I don't even know who the Lib Dem leader is these days. Well, it's, so. gone, it's gone to Sir Ed Davey. But I mean, here's another guy that you might as well never have heard of because he never he never speaks, never says anything. He occasionally gets up during Prime Minister's questions when he gets a, a question to ask. But there's so few of them now that they've have they've got no sort of um, they've got no kind of weight to, to bring to the to any argument. And the last time I heard him say anything about policy, they did actually go anti-lockdown before the um, uh, before the election, but nobody really noticed. Right. Yeah. And I think that's pro- a big problem, Mike, that we've got at the moment is this lack of opposition against all the, the kind of the restrictions yeah. that are in place. And who's running the country? Because ultimately, you know, you vote politicians in to make policy decisions. So the government of the day, whether it's in Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales or England, should be taking the decisions. But it seems to be that they've been de- delegated the responsibilities down to SAGE in England. Mm. And, you know, and they've just been constantly kind of scaremongering and worrying. But you've got to look at the cost of all of this, Mike. So the, the testing, the kind of the, the economic harm and all of this, the money doesn't grow on trees. You know, this money has to be paid back from somewhere. Mm. And ultimately, it's going to be our children who are going to, have to be paying this back. And it's just it's just a travesty, Mike, especially when deaths have been below average for, like, say, two and a half months. We've got this huge impact on mental health. We've got waiting lists that are continuing to grow. We've got GPs who haven't been diagnosing people, which will probably increase the waiting lists even further. Fewer people are going into A&E. And another sad statistic, Mike, is that if you look at the last year, we talk about deaths above average. Mm. Well, deaths have been above average in people's homes for the last year as well. So people have been too scared to go to hospital, and that's probably led to a lot of deaths as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Jamie, great to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics, the ONS. He's our favourite statistician because what he does is he just cuts straight to the chase uh, and basically tells us what is really going on. The idea that somehow uh, we're supposed to delay the reopening on June the 21st just because somebody from SAGE thinks that there's a third wave coming without any evidence whatsoever. I mean, to say this, right, uh, that we've got quite high levels of vaccination in the population, uh, so, but that may have created a false sense of security. Well, how is it a false sense of security? If you're vaccinated, 
you're very, very unlikely to get ill. They know that. They've said that. So what on earth is this Gupta person going on about? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.